Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you are saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you are saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Heavenly Father, um, we pray that this morning we would grasp what it means to be heirs of grace as we've been singing, that we would understand more that we've been called out of darkness into your most marvellous light, and indeed to know what it means then to be in that light and and how we ought to respond uh, ultimately as we've sung to your praise and glory. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, it's brilliant to see you and uh, good to see a number of you perhaps back from uh, a bit of a break over the summer. I do hope uh, one way or another the summer's been good for you, whether you've been away or not. And uh, I very much welcome you all, and especially if you're here for the first time, adding my welcome to that of Andy's uh, earlier in our meeting. Now, two things that I think you find extremely helpful to do. One would be to grab hold of a Bible again uh, and uh, to turn back to the reading uh, that Rita read for us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174 is the page number, page 1174. I think you'll find that helpful. The other thing, uh, whether you want to take notes or not, I think you'll find it useful to have the, uh, the sermon outline that has also been put in in your bundle, and uh, that will help you to see uh, where we're heading in the next uh, few moments. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, the the 20th century American novelist and journalist, wrote a short story about a Spanish father who longed to be reconciled with his son who had run away to Madrid. In a desperate attempt to make contact with his son, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper called El Liberal. Uh, The full-page advert simply read this. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Now, to understand the story, you need to know that Paco was, at that time, a very common name in Spain. And when the father went to the square outside Hotel Montana, just before noon on Tuesday, the square was absolutely packed with young men, 800 young men, all named Paco, all waiting to be reconciled to their fathers. It's a very moving picture. 
That one moment in that one short story illustrates the one longing that is in the hearts of hundreds of thousands of people in this city and all over the nation and all throughout this world. That is the longing to be reconciled with a child, with a parent, a spouse, a friend, a neighbour, a colleague and most importantly of all, to be reconciled with our God, our Heavenly Father. Now, in the next few weeks, on Sundays and uh, indeed in our small groups, we're going to be thinking about the way reconciliation with God is possible as we engage with the truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion or worldview that has ever existed. It is the wonder of grace, as we were hearing earlier uh, in the all-in slot. Grace is not a greeting given to people of high office, you know, your grace. It's not something we say before mealtimes. Grace is, and this is the definition that we've been working on um, as a staff team that we're going to keep coming back to over these next weeks. Grace is the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. We're looking at this life-changing and utterly transforming truth this term because it was one of the key truths rediscovered during the Reformation. Again, we uh, heard about this um, uh, during the all-in slot. Next month will mark the 500th anniversary of the moment when the Reformation is considered to have started when Martin Luther nailed a poster to the door at All Saints Church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October, 1517. The Reformation changed and 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 shaped Europe as the reformers came to speak of five great truths, or solas as they became known. They taught that the great authority about God and salvation is found in scripture alone, that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, and that all Christians should live to the glory of God alone. All five solas, as they're called, are important, and they all hang together. Already this year, we've had short series in Scripture alone and Christ alone. Now we're dedicating the first part of this term to thinking about the wonderful truth that we are saved by grace alone. Because when we get grace, it is utterly life-transforming. Many of us here, indeed hundreds and thousands, millions, is not an exaggeration of people down through the years, have been changed by grace alone and understanding that we are saved by grace alone. But here's one, John Newton, the 18th century Navy captain who piloted ships that transported slaves. When grace grabbed Newton's heart, he renounced his trade and became a prominent supporter of the abolition of the slave trade. And famously, he wrote some of the most celebrated words in the history of Christian hymnody. Amazing grace, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once lost, now found, blind, now I see. The grace of God completely transforms people, but only when we're amazed by it. And to be amazed by it, we have to understand, as John Newton did, that we are utterly wretched. Now, our Bible passage this morning does exactly that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. This passage is all about grace. Now, look with me, if you will, at verse 5. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, God did amazing things. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. 
And again in verse eight, for it is by grace you have been saved. Grace, grace, grace. But before we read of grace here in this passage, we discover the uncomfortable truth that we are dead in sin. And that, if you're following along, is our first point on the handout. It's verses one to three. Let me read them again. Verse one, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now let me uh, speak to the gentleman here for a moment. Let me take you back to the last time you bought some jewellery for your loved one. Sadly, it might be a very long time, but uh, still, cast your mind back. There's a few people who are nudging their husbands. Please keep your elbows in at this moment. Take you back, uh, gentlemen, if I may, to when you pointed to the necklace or earrings behind the glass cabinet in the shop, and after unlocking the cabinet, the the shop assistant fetched the item of jewellery and placed it carefully on a black velvet background. The black background made the jewellery look more stunning than when it had caught your eye in the window. Of course, the black background doesn't actually make it more precious or more costly or even more beautiful, but it does show its beauty in relief more clearly. Now, the first three verses of this chapter are the dark background that show us how beautiful, show us more how much more beautiful the grace of God is. It doesn't make it more beautiful in one sense, but it shows us how wonderful the grace of God is. Uh, these verses, verses one to three, describe everyone before they become a Christian. So if you are a Christian today, this describes you before you became a follower of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, it describes you now. And let me warn you, it's not flattering. It is very dark. Verse one, as for you, you were dead. Now anyone who is apart from Jesus Christ is like a dead man walking, spiritually dead. Now, that might be really hard to believe for many people. I think of someone who the other day was saying that uh, when they wake up in the morning, they feel terrific. <laughs> They're not tired or anxious or overwhelmed. They just feel refreshed, full of energy and wanting to embrace life. Now, I don't, I don't know about most of you, I doubt feel like In fact, it's 11 o'clock and you still don't feel like that, do you? But that's how they, they had that kind of, it's good to be alive feeling. They feel vibrant life coursing through their body. Now, if you feel like that, it's hard to believe that you're a dead man walking. That said, others here this morning will have that sense of being spiritually dead. You feel dead towards God. You may feel that he is very distant from you. You might have made all sorts of very serious attempts to try and get in touch with God, but nothing seems to work. Just as we uh, learned from Martin Luther in the video clip, tried, went to great lengths to try and be right with God. If we were to express in relational terms your relationship with God, it's more like a a frigid marriage than a wonderful love story. A relationship that has completely disintegrated. You don't talk to God, you don't know how to relate to him, and quite honestly, you don't feel anything in your heart towards him. If your relationship with God were a marriage, you'd say it was dead. And without the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us back to God through Jesus Christ... That's how everyone is in their standing before God. Spiritually, we are dead men walking. Now, verse one tells us why. The problem is, you see it there in verse one, transgressions and sins. Sin, of course, is a Bible word, very often misunderstood. 
Even as I say it now, it will evoke a number of different thoughts and emotions around the room. For some, call them a sinner, and while it's not a four-letter word, they'll think you're being extremely rude to them. Others think it's a word used by religious fanatics, you know, puritanical types, always going on about sin. Sometimes it has a very narrow definition, something to do with sex. So a previous generation would refer to people who lived together before they got married as living in sin. And for others, sin is not that serious. It's about doing things that are naughty but nice. You know, like uh, eating cream cakes. I shouldn't for the sake of my waistline, but I can't resist it and it really doesn't do me any harm, does it? A little bit of sin. And then there are some people who talk about sin in the most peculiar way. At a conference I went to, I met someone I'd not met before and asked them what they did for a living and they said, oh, I'm a bishop for my sins. And I thought to myself, well, I jolly well hope they didn't make you a bishop because of your sins. And my point is, in all of this, is that the the sin word is often misunderstood. But look, sin is not naughty but nice, not a narrowly defined thing that only the stuck-up puritanical types throw at you in order to be rude. No, sin is serious. It is deadly serious because, verse 1, it leaves us spiritually dead. It cuts us off from God, who is the source of all life. For primarily, then, sin is against God. Now, for sure, I can sin against you, and we do sin against each other, and that hurts and ruins things between us, and that is serious. But even when I do sin against you, I am at the same time sinning against God. Because God says, love your neighbor. And so when I fail to love you as I should, along with hurting you, I am saying to God, I don't care that you've told me to love others. I don't want to love them, not at this moment. I'm not going to. At its root then, sin is a rejection of God. It is treason. He is the king. And when I sin, I am saying, I don't want God to be my king. I don't want him to tell me how to run my life. I want to be king of my life. Having told us that sin makes us dead spiritually, in verses two and three, we discover why we sin. And there are three big things that cause us to sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we see the first of those in verse 2. I'll read again from verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The ways of this world. Just take the apparently innocuous world of advertising. I used to be in it. There I am, glued to the television set, watching Cricket on Five or Coronation Street or Love Island. I've tried to grab a whole number of things that we might watch. I'm watching these things and then on come the ads. And for the next three minutes, without me even realising it, I'm being subtly lured away from God. Cadbury's or McDonald's tried to persuade me that the thing that is going to make me happy and content is a hamburger or a slab of dairy milk chocolate. And if I spray myself with linked deodorant uh, or buy a new citron, I'll be irresistible to young, attractive girls with perfectly formed bodies. Now, that may be true. I haven't tried it myself. Dan, really, far too scary, all those women throwing themselves at me. But there I am, sitting on my sofa, minding my own business, and like a skillful and persuasive salesman, the world dangles attractive alternatives in front of me and says to me, take this, you know you want it, and it'll give you what is missing in your life. It will satisfy your heart's desire. And at that point, the world is saying to me, turn away from God. Turn away from the one who is the only one who can give you real satisfaction that lasts forever. 
And never mind the adverts when Coronation Street comes back on. And indeed, in every area of life, through opinions and thought systems and attitudes and my leisure activities, the world encourages me to sin. That is, it encourages me to put something else in the place of God. The world then. And then in verse 2, there's the devil. Again, reading from verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Yeah, there's the world, but there's also the devil. There is a dark force at work in this world. Now, I don't think I need to persuade you of this. When we hear the news of the latest act of terrorism and consider the barbaric wickedness that causes such indiscriminate pain and suffering, then most people I speak to believe that there must be an evil force in this world that drives people to do such horrendous acts. Now, the Bible tells us that evil force is personal. The devil, or as verse 2 describes him, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. Now, that last expression, the one who works in us to be disobedient, that expression helps us to see that the work of the devil is not just limited to acts of global terrorism. The devil is doing his darndest to lure people away from the Lord and to disobey God. Often the devil does that through the worldly influences that we've already briefly considered. So we are tempted to sin by the world, by the devil, but thirdly in verse 3, we have to take personal responsibility for our sin. Do you see it there in verse 3? We gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and follow its desires and thoughts. I can't simply blame the external influences of the world and the devil when I sinfully push God out of my life. Sometimes, often I do it because I want to do it. I can't plead that I only sin because I'm, 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 I'm taken by the scruff of the neck, kicking and screaming, I'm forced to sin. No, I choose to sin. I follow my own desires and cravings. That takes us to the very heart of the problem. In my heart, deep down, desires and cravings that are not for God, but for all manner of other things that I want to put in God's place. Now look, at this point, we might hold our hands up and say, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Yes, I break the speed limit from time to time, and I know I can be selfish, and I might even tell little white lies, but look, I don't murder, I'm not a terrorist or a a paedophile or a dentist. Sorry, the dentists are getting a hard time this morning. We do love dentists as well. But, but you know, as we think that way, this is, this is to misunderstand the gravity of sin. Now, look, when I lie, when I twist the facts of a conversation to make myself look better, and that is lying, or bend the truth to get myself out of a fix, you know, I'm in a bit of a problem here, I better just explain it slightly differently. When I tell one of those little white lies, it doesn't seem to do anybody any harm at the time. Maybe it doesn't actually, to be fair. But when I lie, at that moment, I'm shaking my fist in the face of God, the God who says you should not lie. At that point, I'm saying, I don't care what you say. I don't care that you tell me not to lie. I think I know best. I know better than you, God. What a remarkable thing to say. And I think the best thing for me at the moment is that I do tell this lie. So get lost, God, I'm going to lie anyway. Do you see the problem? At that moment, even in the smallest things, I'm rebelling against God. And it ruins my relationship with him. I push him away. I separate myself from the God who is the source of life. 
And when I become detached from the source of life, I will die. Spiritually, I'm a dead man walking. Now, you might have thought at that point it couldn't get any worse, but it does, because all of this leaves me, end of verse 3, an object of wrath. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is the settled, controlled, righteous anger of God against wrong. Now, when I speak to people, most people I meet want God, if there is a God, to be one who is against wrong and evil. Now, when terrible things happen in the world, they often, people often say to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't do anything about that terrible evil. You see, we want someone who acts against wrong and evil. Well, he does. And the wrath of God is the settled, controlled, righteous anger of God against wrong. But here's the thing, because I turn from God and reject him, because I am wrong and evil, I deserve to be on the receiving end of the full force of God's wrath. That's what I deserve. And there's nothing I can do about it, because I'm dead spiritually. And dead people can't do anything to help themselves. We're in a catastrophic situation. In your mind's eye, let me take you to the local hospital. As we walk through the main entrance, we're not going up the lift to one of the wards to visit a patient. No, we're going down. Down into the basement of the hospital, into a cool room where the trolleys have no sheets on them. They are just cold, shiny metallic slabs. Yes, we're in the morgue. And as we walk in, there is a dead body with a single white sheet pulled over them. They were pronounced dead some hours ago, and now they're lying there. And there is nothing that poor soul can do to bring themselves back to life. Indeed, come to that, there's nothing anyone can do, even in a brilliant hospital with great resources, hard-working, dedicated staff, top physicians, and state-of-the-art equipment. There's nothing that can be done for that person. That's how we are before God. Verse 1, dead. And end of verse 3, facing a fate worse than death, the wrath of God, and there's nothing we can do about it. Of course, many people do try to do something about it. They try to be good or religious, but morality and religious activity doesn't bring spiritual people back to life. The only way we can have life is if God, the source of life, brings and breathes life into us again. That's our condition. And the first three verses of this chapter are bleak. You might say at this point, so much for a message that is utterly life-transforming and wonderful to be thinking about for the next four or five weeks. But look, unless we grasp how wretched we are, to use John, John Newton's word, until we get that, we will never be amazed by grace. Indeed, it was one of the key issues during the Reformation to grasp our utter helplessness before God. I think of one debate that happened between the reformer Martin Luther and the most celebrated scholar in the world at the time, a man called Erasmus. Erasmus didn't think that we were dead spiritually. His view was that we were just kind of sluggish or sleepy and just needed waking up spiritually. But Luther knew that that wasn't true. As we saw in the little video, most of his adult life, Luther tried his hardest and put in the most extraordinary religious effort to try and be right with God, but none of it worked, and none of it crucially changed his heart. He was dead towards God. Oh, we're not just sleepy. We're not just spiritually sick. We are dead. Sin kills us, and we are utterly sinful. That is the, the, black, the black background that then makes the grace of God shine amazingly brightly. 
So we move from uh, dead in sin to over the page on the handout, saved by grace. Actually, I, I, after putting the handout together, I, after having it printed, I think probably the title of the second point should be Alive in Christ. Anyway, this is much more brief uh, than the first point. Look with me at verse four. But, after all of this stuff in verses one to three, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Isn't that spectacularly good news? God made us alive, even when we were dead in transgressions. The amazing thing here is not just that God steps in to make us alive. That, for sure, is amazing. Bringing life is a miracle that only God can do. But what's so amazing about grace is that God made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. Even though we rebelled against him, willfully refused to go his way. Again and again and again pushed him out and said, I don't want anything to do with you and shook our fist in his face. Then still he stepped in. It is amazing because we don't deserve it. It's amazing because of who God is. He did it, verse four, because of his great love. And end of verse four, because he is rich in mercy. Of course, when we realize how the grace of God come to us, it's amazing because it's no small thing. It came about through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. Such costly love. And so end of verse five, there's our word. It is by grace you've been saved. Grace, the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. As the uh, the great Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Salvation is by grace alone. And so Philip Yancey, the author, writes these words, grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is not because of who we are. And God not only shows us grace in bringing us into a relationship with him now, but he gives us a status that makes our future secure. Look at verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Theologians talk about union with Christ. Uh, By that they mean by grace I have been so united with Christ that wherever he is, I am. Just as God raised Christ from the dead and then he ascended to heaven. So, verse 6, do you see it there? God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. United to Christ by grace, I am where he is. Now, why is that put here? Because it's to tell us that means there is no question mark about whether the believer will be with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms one day. In Christ, you are there already. It's certain. And God did that, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I love that in verse 7, the incomparable riches of his grace. Now, look, it is impossible for me as a preacher to express to you how brilliant God's grace is and how wonderful it is to benefit from his grace. It's impossible for me to do that, not because I haven't worked hard this week to think of a way of explaining it, but because no one can find the words to express. It is incomparable. 
There is nothing else in the entire universe that compares to the kindness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. There's no point trying to explain it. And so in the ages to come, as it says there in verse 7, both in this present age and when we are finally with God forever in eternity, in the ages to come, we will never finally plumb the depths of God's love for us. We will never fully grasp the extent of how God is kind to us in Christ Jesus, dying for us on the cross to bring us back to God. It's like the wonder of every new sunset. You know, you, whenever I see a new sunset, I never, I never, never get bored with it or take it for granted or another sunset. I go, wow. That is how it's going to be for all eternity when we think of the incomparable riches of his grace in Christ. All the time, every day for eternity. Wow. Finally, what does all this mean for us? Well, I hope it does make us go, well, I hope it is amazing for us. And over the next weeks, we are going to be trying to explore together much more of the grace of God, but we're never going to plumb the depths of it. But briefly, as we close this morning, um, how might it change us now? Well, thirdly, the grace of God means uh, restored in relationships. This is verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me read verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. First, know that it is by grace we're saved. Look, it's repeated twice in this passage here in verse 8 and at the end of verse 5. It's repeated because it's the big point. If you get nothing else, please get that. My salvation is completely undeserved. I am made right with God through grace, not through my deeds, not through my religious observance. Indeed, in verse 8, even the faith that we have to respond to God is given to us by God. It's all grace, the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. And that should give you and I great assurance. My salvation is not dependent on my effort So in Christ, my relationship with God is unwavering. I am always acceptable to God. I'm acceptable to God regardless of how I perform today. That's brilliant news because I'm going to blow it with you and I'm going to blow it with my family and I'm going to blow it with myself and I'm going to blow it with my God today again and again, just today again and again and again. But my relationship with God is restored by grace and that never changes. That's the first relationship that is right and good and proper and okay because of what God has done for me. That's what grace does. Second, it changes my relationship with everyone else. See it there in verse 9. It means, grace means, there is no place for boasting. See, I'm not right with God because of my moral or religious performance. I think unbelievers, when they misunderstand what we're saying, rightly are outraged by our kinds. When we say, I'm sure I'm going to heaven, they say, they are hearing, you're sure you're a brilliant person and you're good enough for God. They're outraged by that. That's not it at all. I'm sure I'm going to heaven. I'm sure I'm right with God because he's done it all for me. I'm not right with God because of my moral or religious performance. I deserve only God's wrath. Now, that is true of all of us if we're Christians. That leaves all of us on a level playing field. No one in church is better than anyone else. And if I get that, then I should relate to you as I should, as one forgiven sinner to another. I will not be on my high horse thinking I'm brilliant and you're a little bit less. 
So grace means that in the church family there is total equality. No first and second class citizens. In God's family, worldly status means nothing. It doesn't matter what you do for a job outside of here. It doesn't matter a, a, a jot. We don't have to pretend with each other either. We don't have to pretend that we're better than we are. Because if I may put it this way, everyone here has made a slobbering mess of their lives and is acceptable to God only because of the sheer undeserved kindness of God. So listen again to some words by uh, Philip Yancey, the, um, the author. Church should be a haven for people who feel terrible about themselves. Theologically, that is our ticket for entry. So if you feel a complete and utter mess, welcome. Come and join the rest of us. Knowing that should mean that we treat one another properly and equally. Gone is boasting and pride, verse 9, because no one is in God's family because of their efforts or their achievement. You see then, grace not only restores my relationship with God, it restores our relationship with one another. That, incidentally, is what the second half of chapter 2 is largely about. There is, of course, so much more to be said about grace. We'll try and do some of that in the weeks ahead. But for now, will you be amazed by grace? Be amazed that despite the wretches that we are, and despite everything that we actually deserve, God the Father wants to be reconciled to us estranged people. It's as if as Jesus died on the cross, God said, this sinner, meet me at the cross of Jesus where all is forgiven, the Father. And hundreds of us here have come to the cross because we've been longing to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. When I think about this, I'm amazed that hundreds of thousands more don't want to do the same. Now let me ask you this morning as we close, what about you? Have you taken advantage of the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people? Uh, You might be here this morning saying, uh, yeah, you know, I I like what I'm hearing, but I need to know more yet before I make that kind of step. Well, uh, in just a a month's time, we're going to be running a Christian Explored course. There are these leaflets uh, dotted around the place. Uh, It begins on Tuesday, the 10th of October. Uh, There's two uh, opportunities, 10 o'clock in the morning with a creche, if that sort of suits your situation, or 7.15 in the evening with a meal. Uh, Do please think about coming along. There'll be others here who are saying, you know, I I don't want to wait until the 10th of October. I want to take hold of the abundant kindness of our generous God now. Uh, Well, I have a a booklet called Just Grace. It says some more about the sorts of things I've been saying today. And if you want to make a start, there's a a bit at the back of here that tells you how you can do that. Uh, So do please take one of those from me. I'll be standing at the back with a, a bundle of them and just say that you want one as you go out and I'd be happy uh, to give you one. For now, let's uh, pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, uh, this morning for your great love for us. We thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. And we thank you that you made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. What amazing grace that is. Indeed, we pray we would be amazed by it. And as we grab hold of grace more and more, that it would truly be utterly life-changing for us 
in Jesus' name. Amen.